I'm really enjoying this on our videos. I hope you are too. It's just wonderful to see different various ways that all in our unique situations, our unique characters, we're able to be something like we are. Thank you to those of you who've shared your stories with us. There's a few more still to come as well in this series. Because we're in a pre-series called uh, Living the Gospel, Being Salt and Light. We're talking about how can you and I, in our daily lives, live out who we are as Christians, as salt and light, and in that, show people Jesus. Invite people to become followers of Jesus alongside ourselves. And so we've looked at things like gospel welcome, and suffering, and character, and signs and wonders. And today, we're going to tackle a different topic. Today, we're going to talk about gospel community, or we could say church as family. And I know what you might be thinking now. You might be thinking, well, is that actually really relevant to thinking about mission, to telling other people about Jesus? You might even think, actually, isn't gospel community, church and family, isn't that a distraction from getting out there and telling people about Jesus? Doesn't it stop us from going on mission? Well, I don't think it does. I don't think Jesus thinks it does. And we're going to look at some stuff that Jesus said today, which I think shows that he knew that gospel community, church as family, is actually vital to being involved in the mission that he has called us to be involved in. You see, when it comes to mission, to telling people about Jesus, we tend to think only of the invitation. We focus purely on the invitation, and we don't think about the thing we're inviting them to. We think about the invitation as the going out, telling people, and then the event as being church community together. And so we focus on getting the invitation just right. And you know, you want the right words, the right design. You want to send it at the right time to the right place so people are going to respond to it well. And we're hoping that will draw people in. But you know, often, actually the most effective invitation is not being told about something. It's seeing something. Often the best invitation to an event is to actually see the event itself. Now I have a bit of confession to make. I'm not a very social person. I love you all dearly, but I'm quite introverted. I like my space. I'm not a huge fan of big groups of people. And I'm, uh, yeah, not a social person. That means, to be honest, if you invite me to a party, my instinct will be that I don't want to come. I'm so very conscious I was at a party in this building last night, so please listen to the whole of what I say to reassure you. (laughs) My honest truth is the instinct will be that I don't want to go, but I also know that when I get there, more often than not, I will really enjoy it, and I'll be really glad that I went. The best kind of thing to convince me that a party is somewhere I want to be is to actually be there. Often the thing itself, seeing it, experiencing it, is the best invitation you can give. And I think in mission we need to think about both the invitation and the event because sometimes the event is the thing that most powerfully draws people in. And of course this is a flawed picture, a flawed analogy, because the best parts of the event are already done, we don't do them. Jesus has done it, he's paid the price for our sins, we can be forgiven, we can be adopted by God, all of that is there. But church community, church as family is one of the gospel blessings we get from responding to Jesus. It's part of God's plan in saving us. And I think it's part of God's plan to help people see the goodness of the gospel, to invite them in, to draw them in. And so for us, getting church's family right is really important if we want to be a family who are inviting other people to come and follow Jesus with us. So what I want to do this morning is just to take a look at what Jesus says about this. We're going to do two things. We're going to look at what does Jesus say about gospel and community and mission. And then we're going to ask, on the basis of what he said, how do you and I live that out in our lives? How do we become the kind of community that Jesus seems to call us to be? 
And so if you look at what Jesus says, we're going to go to John 13. John is one of the accounts in the Bible of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And when you reach chapter 13 of uh, John's Gospel, you reach quite a turning point. The first 12 chapters have covered a few years of Jesus' life. He's gone around healing people, preaching, telling people uh, about God the Father, inviting them to follow him. At chapter 13, we reach the night that Jesus will be betrayed. And the whole rest of the gospel, up to 21, covers the next kind of few days um, of his life and his death and his resurrection. It's a really key point. And we've seen at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus, as he gathers with his disciples at the Last Supper, he washes the feet of his disciples. And then he predicts the fact that Judas, one of his followers, is going to betray him and hand him over to the authorities. And Judas goes out, and Jesus knows that at that point, the ball is rolling. He knows the inevitable consequences that happen now that Judas has gone to betray him. And that's where we pick up the story, is he now talks to the rest of the disciples who are there with him. This is verse 33 in John 13. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus starts with the warning that he's soon about to leave them, and that they can't yet follow where he's going. He knows that because Judas is gone, he'll be handed over to the authorities, that he will be executed, that he'll raise from the dead, he'll return to be with God the Father a little bit later. And he says at the moment, they can't follow where he goes. That situation will change. In a few verses' time, he's going to tell Peter that he can't follow him immediately, but he will follow him later. And just after this in chapter 14 is where Jesus is talking about this, and he says he is the way and the truth and the life. He's not saying you can never follow where he's going, He's just saying he knows he has to walk that path first. He goes ahead of them, and they can only, and we can only follow later. And as Jesus thinks about the fact that he's going to go, and they will be left, he gives them this new command, this new instruction. The kind of thinking being, the implied logic being, when I'm gone, this is what you're to do. This is how you're to live when I'm no longer here with you in this way on earth. And what Jesus says is clearly, in his mind, really, really important. He doesn't just say, well, here's what you're going to do. He doesn't just say, here's an instruction. He says, this is a new commandment. He said, this is special. This is new. This is something to be highlighted. And I wonder if we'd been there, what we would have expected Jesus to say. If he said to you, I've got a new commandment for you, I wonder what we would have assumed it would be. Maybe it would be something about, I don't know, some sort of religious ritual. Something to help us keep pure and clean. Maybe it'd be something about being a good person. I wonder what we would have chosen. And I think sometimes what Jesus said actually might be quite a surprise to us. He says this new commandment, the thing you're to to value, to investing when I'm gone, the thing which I'm marking out as most important here is that you love one another. He says this is so important. I'm telling you this is the new commandment. This is so important. I've left it for this key moment. The last moment, as it were, before I'm handed over to give you this command, love one another. Actually, in a sense, the command isn't very new. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel, God's people, were told to love their neighbors. But what is new is the explanation that follows. What this love is meant to look like, what it's meant to follow. He says, love one another 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now that's the new bit. In the Old Testament, they were told to love their neighbor as they loved themselves, which is kind of the thing of, you know, do to others what you want them to do to you, which Jesus agreed with. Jesus affirmed that several times. But now he's saying, love one another as I have loved you. And so it raises the question, well, what does he mean? How has Jesus loved them? Well, if we go back to the beginning of John 13, the very first chapter, verse of this chapter says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This whole chapter is introduced as we're about to see how Jesus loves his disciples. And the first thing we see is that Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And that was an unbelievably radical thing for him to do. It's kind of hard for us to go our heads around how incredible it is that Jesus did that. In the ancient world, you'd arrive for dinner, and a slave would take off your sandals and would wash your feet. And this was deemed so kind of demeaning, so degrading, that only a slave was allowed to do it. In fact, in later Jewish tradition, Jewish slaves weren't even allowed to do it. It had to be a Gentile slave, because it was seen deemed so degrading, so demeaning, that no Jewish person was actually allowed to do it. And so this meal seems to have started without any foot washing. Presumably there wasn't a slave there. This is a, a very private affair with just Jesus and his closest followers there. But then partway through the meal, Jesus gets up. He takes off his outer clothes, he puts a towel around his waist, and he starts to wash the disciples' feet. And there would just have been this awkward, stony silence, this utter amazement, and this great kind of feeling of uncomfortability, everyone feeling awkward, no one had been willing to do this. But now the master, the one they follow, he was the one who was lowering himself to that level. He was the one who was doing it. And Jesus begins to go around the disciples, and there's just this awkward silence. No one knows quite what to do. This is so uncomfortable. Until he gets to Peter, and Peter thinks, well, I can't have this. I can't have Jesus washing my feet. He says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. He's saying, that, that's far below you. You can't lower yourself to that level. What are you, what are you doing? But Jesus explains, this is a picture of the washing that you need if you want to be my follower, if you want to be with me. You see, when Jesus washed their feet, it was an incredible act of service and love, but actually he knew it was pointing to something much, much more significant. He knew it was pointing forward to the next day when he would show them the ultimate demonstration of love. He would show the ultimate demonstration of love for every single one of us when he hung, when he died on a cross. As he gives this command, you to love one another as I have loved you, he knows that that very night he'll be uh, betrayed by one of his closest friends. He'll be handed over to the Jewish authorities. The next morning he knows he'll be handed over to the Gentile rulers. He'll be falsely accused. He'll be unfairly tried. He'll be flogged. He'll be crowned with a crown of thorns. He'll be mocked and beaten. And ultimately he'll be crucified, executed on a Roman cross left there to endure a long, agonizing death until eventually he can cry out the cry of victory, it is finished. Jesus loved them to the end because he went through to the very end of the plan 
that for all eternity, God had had to demonstrate his love to save people like you and I who had rebelled against him. He loves in self-sacrifice, in taking our place, in bearing our punishment, in getting what we deserve, even though he could never, ever have actually deserved that. When he says, love one another, just as I've loved you, you are also as to love one another. He's looking back to the foot washing, but even more than that, he's looking forward to the sacrifice of him very self that he will give to the next day. He calls us to that kind of love, to a a love which preferences the other, a love which is about self-sacrifice, a love which is looking to lay down our lives for other people. In a few chapters later, in chapter 15, still on this same night, he'll repeat the command, and there he'll explain it. He'll say, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. He say, you want to know what real love is like? He says, actually, it's in friendship. People lay down their lives for others. He gives this incredible new command, but he doesn't stop with the command. Notice he doesn't just say, go and do this. End of. Draw a line there. He explains why they should do it. And again, I think this is surprising to us. He doesn't say they should go and do it because it's right to do, although it is. He doesn't say they should go and do it because it's a good thing, although it is. He doesn't say they should go and do it to kind of earn some status with God because they could never do that. No action can ever do that. He says, well, to do this because by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says that this kind of radical, self-giving love between his followers is meant to be the thing that other people are looking at and say, wow, they must be a follower of Jesus. It's meant to be the thing that marks us out. Surprisingly here, Jesus doesn't say that it's signs and wonders or prophecies or doing good stuff or social action or being the best neighbors we can be or being friendly people. He says the thing that really marks us out as Jesus followers is the way we love one another as family, loving each other as he has loved us. Friends, that means if you're a follower of Jesus here today, your life should look different in this way. You should be loving each other such that people say, you must be a follower of Jesus because look how you love in that family. And sometimes we can want to try and seem normal as Christians. Sometimes we kind of want to fit in and blend into the crowds. Jesus is telling us we're not meant to be normal. We're not meant to blend into the crowd. People may look at you and go, you must be a follower of Jesus. Because there's something different about you, about the way you're living your life. And so this is where we see gospel community flowing into mission. Jesus says, as people are looking on us living as family, they're seeing something of that love. And if it's the love that is modeled on his love for us, they're seeing something of his love. So I think there are a few different ways that gospel community, church, as family flows into mission. That's the first one. If our love for each other is modeled on Jesus' love for us, then when people look in on us, when they see the love we have for one another, they're seeing a picture of God's love. It's a demonstration before their eyes of the kind of radical, self-giving, self-sacrificial love that God has for every single one of us. Our relationships should be a window for people to look in and see something of God's heart demonstrated to us. And that kind of invites questions. It invites conversations. It opens up opportunities to talk about why do we love each other so much? It's because we have been loved by God so much. 
when I was uh, preparing this talk, I asked a few friends, do you have any kind of examples of where this has happened? Where actually loving each other as church has led to people looking and kind of seeing the heart of God and opportunities being opened up. And one friend said to me there was a time when her husband had to be away for quite a while. And she said the church family were amazing at supporting her. She looked after their two young kids and, you know, feeding them with meals and cleaning their house and helping with bedtime and all the kind of practical things. And she said she was able to be really open with her colleagues about that. And that her colleagues were just really amazed. And it opened up all these opportunities to talk about why we live as family in that way. She said she could talk with these people. She even got to pray with some of her colleagues on the basis of having talked about what it means to be church as family. This is a wonderful opportunity to show people something of God's heart and to open up the opportunity to begin to tell them about Jesus. Community illustrates for us God's love. But then also, I think, community and mission link, because community is attractive. And in the heart of every human being is a desire to love and to be loved. We're hardwired to need human community. You see that back in Genesis 2, you know, the story of creation with Adam in the garden? There's this perfect world, beautiful garden, everything is perfect, and Adam's there. But God notices one thing isn't perfect. The thing that isn't perfect is that he is on his own. Actually, he's been created for human community. And that's why God creates Eve. And that's why human community starts at that point. Every one of us has a right and legitimate God-given need for human community, for human love. I think you see that in things like the Friends phenomenon. You know, the TV program Friends, which still is really popular, has kind of had a whole resurgence, actually. Now it's gone on Netflix. The reason that has resonated for decades now so deeply is all of us kind of are attracted to the idea of such a sense of community because our hearts are wired to, to want that and to need that. So when people look in and see the kind of church community we are, see us living as family, it's an attractive thing to people. Because God's desiring every human heart for close, intimate human community. And then the final way, or the final way I'll talk about, there are lots of ways I think that gospel community flows into mission, is that community creates plausibility. By which I mean community makes it possible to be a follower of Jesus even when it's hard, because being a follower of Jesus is hard. Jesus says that to follow him is to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. That doesn't sound very comfortable. It's not meant to be comfortable. Christian life, I'm sorry, it isn't meant to be easy. Christian life will be costly and painful and difficult. To become a Christian is to say that Jesus is Lord. And many people don't like that. For some people, following Jesus will mean losing friends, mean losing family, relationships, status, opportunities, jobs, all kinds of things. But Jesus promises that we might have to leave behind all sorts of people and things in this life to follow him. But then he makes this amazing promise that in this life and in the age to come, he will restore to us all those things. He says if you leave brothers and mothers and sisters, he will give you in this age and the age to come brothers and mothers and sisters. And church family is part of how he does that. Us being a community together Loving each other, caring for one another is meant to make it plausible to follow Jesus, even when it's really costly, even when it means losing other community, losing other family, or, or the possibility of other family. Church community is part of God's plan to make the mission work as it were, to make things fit together, work together. 
So I think we can see both in what Jesus says that that community, being community, church as family is really important to mission. It's not a distraction. Actually, it's part of God's plan. It's one of the many ways that he wants us to be involved in inviting other people to come and to follow Jesus. So that's the case. The next obvious important question we need to ask is, well, how do we begin to live as that kind of community? How do you actually live a life that puts that command to love each other, Jesus' followers, as Jesus has loved us into action? What might it look like for us today? In a sense, we're saying, how do we get that event right? So as well as thinking about the invitation, we're thinking about our part of the event that people might looking and want to come and take part in it. Well, there are so, so, so many things that could be said here. We could do a whole series, probably, on what it means to live out this command and what it means to live as this kind of community. But there are, I think, three things that I want to share, which I guess are the things I felt God highlights to me as biblical principles as I prepared for this. The first one is about sharing burdens. In Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul is writing to a bunch of churches in Asia Minor, and he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He's saying we're called to be the kind of family who bear each other's burdens, who carry the weights of others, who walk alongside and support. And when things are difficult, we're arm in arm, encouraging, bearing those difficulties with other people. Notice he says we do that and we fulfill the law of Christ. He may actually be thinking of this commandment in John 13, Probably think it's broader, but John 13 would be in there as part of the law of Christ. He's saying the way you fulfill that is by bearing each other's burdens. And this should be a big part of what it means for us to be community, for us to be family. That's when we have burdens, we're sharing them, we're helping each other, bearing them together. But to be honest, that can be something many of us find hard. We find it hard to admit that we have burdens, let alone to share them with other people. Sometimes we're a lot quicker to want to bear the burdens of other people than we are to want to allow them to bear our burdens. And that's because we live in a culture around us which kind of prizes self-reliance. The idea that we're autonomous individuals, we're people on our own, and we can do okay on our own, we don't need people to help us. That's, that's kind of a pride thing in our culture, that actually you should be able to cope on your own and, and keep going. But the Bible knows the reality is we all have burdens. We're all weak. None of us can get by on our own. We need the help of others. We need the support and the love and the strength of other people. And so God rescues us and puts us into a family where we can do that. And so actually the first kind of real step to bearing burdens and to loving each other as Jesus has loved us is just to have the humility to recognize that on our own we're not okay. We all have times in life, we all have things in life where we need other people to help us and support us. To recognize it's okay to have burdens to share and it's okay to share them. And so we need actually to be okay to burden other people. Often, you know, we, we kind of say something to them, we tell someone what's going on in our lives and we say, I'm so sorry to put this on you. Don't be. You're called to bear each other's burdens. That's what we're called to do as church family together. We're meant to burden each other. And actually, as we do that, we remind ourselves that actually my identity is rooted in Christ. My identity is not based on how well I can cope on my own. My identity is rooted in the fact that God loves me and has adopted me, and therefore, I can be comfortable and confident to share, I'm really not doing okay. Because it doesn't change who I am. God still loves me. People will still love me. But actually, also, he's put people there to help me. And if it's okay to burden others, then also we've got to be okay with other people burdening us. I kind of try and have this attitude of, burden me, 
because I'm going to burden you. It's a, a mutual thing. It's a two-way thing. It's burden-bearing, burden-sharing. And we want to do it both ways for all of us. That means learning to impose on people and learning to let people impose on you. Sharing burdens will sometimes mean kind of pushing in and imposing. But if you want to be able to do that, you also need to be allowing other people to be able to do that to you. And that will be costly sometimes. It will mean people interrupt. It will mean people slightly get in the way of our plans. But surely loving each other as Jesus has loved us will be costly. The way Jesus loved us was incredibly costly to him. And so the impact of loving each other in that way for us should be costly on us. And burden carrying can be in all sorts of different ways. It might be emotional, work walking on the side as people are carrying pain, working through things. It might be in really practical ways, getting involved in helping them with various difficult practical stuff they've got to do. It might be financial, actually. It might be you know of a financial need and you're able to support in that way and to bear a burden to help with that burden as well. And this is something I think I've become, or I'm becoming better at, but it's something I've definitely seen I have to grow into. This is not instinctive for us, I think, in our culture. It doesn't always feel comfortable, but actually it's a choice you make. You have to make the choice to be okay to burden others and make the choice to be okay to be burdened. I've had to make the choice to recognize it's okay to impose myself on other people. That actually the times I've randomly turned up at my friend's house, or the times I've randomly said I'm staying here overnight, or either, whatever it might be, I've called them up late at night, that actually it's okay to do that. But also I've had to make the choice of, even as I'm someone who's very planned, and most minutes and most days are planned that I know what I want to be doing, I've made the choice that actually, if a friend needs me, I'm okay to be burdened by them. I'm okay to be imposed upon by them. They can call any time. They can come to my house when they need to. I had a friend who was in a horrible housing situation, so they came to live with us for a few months until they could get that sorted. It was a bit of an imposition. I have my own living room. I like my own space. I'm not social, I told you. They were there a lot. But you know what? I was able to love them like Jesus loves me. Even if they were imposing, that's what they're meant to do. That's what we're meant to do as church family. So really, I think the key questions here are, are you prepared to burden others? Or actually, do you see even admitting your struggles as a failure? And are you prepared for other people to burden you? And do you live life in such a way that people know that actually they're free to do that to you? Are you prepared to count the cost, really, is of loving people as Jesus has loved you? That's the first way, I think, we begin to put this into action, bearing burdens, sharing burdens. And the next one is putting others' needs first, or putting the needs of other people first. Jesus says, love as I have loved you, which is this love where he put our needs before his own. He thought about what we needed. He acted in our interest uh, to help us. And so I think if we're going to live like that, we need to actively think, how can I help this other person? How can I bless these people? In what ways can I lay down my life to love people in my church family? Ultimately, we're asking the question, what can I give? rather than the question, what can I get? Which again, I think is quite kind of counter-cultural. Because we live in a culture which is very uh, individualistic. We see ourselves as individuals, and we're kind of trained to think of our own wants, our own rights, our own freedoms, our own needs, and that's kind of all that really matters. It's actually kind of a logical extension of a very secular view of what a human is. If you subscribe to a kind of non-theistic Darwinian evolution thing, where actually everything's just a result of the survival of the fittest, you don't have any responsibilities to anyone else. You just have responsibilities to yourself to keep yourself the fittest so you will survive. But a biblical picture is completely different. 
The biblical picture is we have responsibilities towards each other. We're not individuals off on our own. We are communities made by God with responsibilities. We're called to actively lay down our lives for other people. We're called to love and to be loved in that context. And so I think it's good to look for how you can help other people, how you can love other people, which I think means not even just always waiting around for someone asks you to help, but actively thinking, how do I put their needs first? How do I love them? It might be small things. I was thinking through kind of where to take it actually in my life. It might be small things. When I'm with friends, especially friends who have kids, whose houses tend not to be the tidiest and cleanest, when they're putting the kids to bed, I will often get on, I'll do some cleaning, I'll do some tidying. They don't need to ask me to do it. I'm just thinking, how can I really love these people? How can I bless these people? Actually, that's a really practical way I can put their needs first and I can get on doing that. I'm really conscious of my dear friends who have kids who are now thinking, is my house really messy and tidy? It's not. I'm sorry, that was not a nice thing to say. <laughs> or it might be a bigger thing. Sometimes it's you do see a financial need and you think, actually, you know what? I might have to slightly cut back on this or that to do that, but there's a real need there with people I love, and so I'm going to seek to bless them by giving to them. It might be an offer to babysit, an offer to help people who are moving house, whatever it might be. It's almost thinking ahead and thinking, how can I actively love and support people in my church family? And this doesn't, though, mean ignoring your own needs. Because actually, in the long term, that's just really dangerous. If you're constantly giving out, constantly thinking of other people's needs, never paying attention to your own needs, you're just going to burn out and then you'll be no use to anyone. That's not what God wants. That's not a sensible thing. But I do think it is healthy to look at how we can love other people, how we can put this command into action, even actually when we have a lot of needs ourselves, even when we are really struggling. Because actually, often helping other people, loving other people in this way, it can just lift our gaze a bit. And that's a really healthy thing to do if you're really struggling. And there was um, an occasion a few, uh, a few months ago, I was talking with a dear friend at um, a prayer meeting, and I was having a really rubbish week, and we talked for quite a while about just, I was in a very bad place, and Barolo and all sorts. And we got to the end of the conversation, and they were lovely and encouraging and supporting. And at the end of the conversation, I just said to them, I said, so how are you? And they started laughing. And I was kind of like, hmm, you know, why are you laughing? And they're like, I can't believe you're asking me how I am when you're feeling like that, when you've got all that going on. But, you know, I, I genuinely loved them. I genuinely was interested, and I wanted to choose to love them, even if I didn't want to ask them, because actually I knew that it was what Jesus called me to do. And, you know, it helped lift me above. I've just been thinking about all my mess, but just for a few moments to think about someone else really actually helped me. It does us good to keep on actively loving other people, even when we're thinking, I really need other people to actively love me. So think about how you can put the needs of others before your own. That's what it means to fulfill this command. And then finally, the last kind of thing I thought God highlight as to how do we live this out, it is about learning to live as family. Learning to live out this identity that God has given us. Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. That's also pretty much exactly what Paul says of husbands in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands have to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. It's also pretty much exactly what parents are meant to do for their children. Good parenting is very self-sacrificial because you don't get a lot back for a long time. It's uh, the kind of universal thing of actually investing into someone who for a long time is completely dependent upon you. It's a self-sacrificial love. This kind of love Jesus talks about is, is modeled in, illustrated in family, which is why I think he talks about us as family. 
And actually, the Bible says that for us, family is identity. We are family. We're stuck with each other. We're brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not. And then we have to choose to live as family. It's an identity which we then kind of step into. We live out. And it's meant to be a diverse family. We're meant to be intergenerational, with old and young together. We're meant to be diverse from all different nations, all different socioeconomic levels. We're called to be a family that models incredible diversity, but that models unity in diversity. And again, that should be a, a proactive thing for us, seeking to love others who actually might be very different to us, we might not naturally connect with, but they're part of family. And so we seek to do it. And I think actually our living as family is really a powerful, powerful missional opportunity we have in our day and our age. We're living in a society of broken families. We're surrounded by people who've had incredibly painful experiences of family and are longing just for a place where they'll be accepted and loved and where legitimate God-given needs that are put in their heart by God can be met. And actually, we're the kind of community where anybody who becomes a follower of Jesus can experience that. We, I believe, God has made the church as family an answer to so much of the brokenness that people experience in the world around us. And living as family itself, we could say so much about that. It means so many things. But one thing it definitely means is learning hospitality, inviting others into your home and or into your life. And it's interesting that Scripture links this command to love one another with hospitality. So in Romans 12, which is where the Apostle Paul is writing to a uh, church in Rome, and he's explained all the stuff God's done for us, and then he moves on to how we live in chapter 12. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Just like John 13, he talks about various outworkings of that, and then he says, Contribute to the needs of the saints, financial support and seek to show hospitality. He's saying one of the ways you love one another with brotherly affection is by showing hospitality. And he doesn't just say show this, he says seek to show it. The word there actually kind of means pursue, it means chase after, there's real energy. He's saying don't sit around and show hospitality, get the chance. Pursue it, seek it, show or get hold of the opportunities to do this. Or the Apostle Peter, in his letter, he says above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He says, love one another earnestly, and part of how you do that is you show hospitality to each other, and you don't just do it, you do it without grumbling. That's the real challenge. You do it willingly, you do it gladly, not reluctantly. And all of us can do this. You might think you're not very gifted to be very hospitable. You might think, I, I don't have the, the kind of material resources, the money or the house, the space, whatever it might be. But hospitality, I think, starts in a heart attitude. It's a heart attitude of welcoming people in, of welcoming in rather than kind of pushing away. And so there's different ways that different ones of us will do that. It might be that actually you are hospitable when you're at other people's house. It doesn't have to be happy with your house, but actually when you're there, you're being family together, you're playing your part, you're mucking in, you're getting involved and kind of playing your role. And it's helpful to distinguish hospitality from entertaining. The Bible talks a lot about hospitality, whereas we in our culture often talk about entertaining. You have people around and you're entertaining your guests, and that's not wrong, and that's lovely to do sometimes. But actually, as family, it's hospitality. Entertaining is how can I entertain you. It's focused purely on you. Hospitality is we're just family together. We're in this thing together. We're just loving one another and being together in that. 
So how can you welcome people into your life, into your house it might be, or just into what you're doing? How can you play your part in hospitality? And often this sounds very overwhelming and daunting to us, but really it can the simplest way just mean do what you normally do, but do it with other people. What are the areas of your life where you do things, you spend time, where you could let other people come and join with you, be alongside you in that? And something I know for me in my friendships, my experience with church and family, and especially someone who's single and doesn't have their own nuclear family unit, the most precious times to me often are not the times when I feel this, these people are really trying to entertain me and putting on a lavish feast for me. Actually, it's the days when we say, what should we do today? Let's go and, you know, return some library books, as we, we do, we did. Let's, uh, you know, let's paint this room, let's, whatever it might be. It's the really relaxed kind of doing normal stuff, but doing it together. It means so much. That means family. That means hospitality. So something like includes gospel community. Us being the kind of community God has called us to be is vital to us then being on the mission and uh, fulfilling the mission that Jesus has called us to play a part. Investing in our relationships with one another helps us because people look in and they see the love of God uh, exhibited, uh, made an example amongst us, and it opens up opportunities to talk with people, to show them God's love. People are looking and they're attracted to the idea of community because every human heart longs for this. Every human heart is made for this. And people are looking and if they're thinking, if I choose to follow this Jesus, it's going to cost me everything. They're also thinking, but I'm going to get a family who will love me and support me. There is plausibility to the idea of following Jesus. So I want to leave you with a question, what action are you going to take? What is it that you as an individual or a couple of family are going to do to put this into action? It might be you're thinking, I want to do this, but I don't feel very rooted in the church family. How do I get to know some people? You might want to think about joining a connect group, one of our midweek groups. I know we do sign up in September, but you can join at any point. So just head to the info desk today out in Coffee Box if you want to learn more about that. Find a group, and that's a great way of getting to know some people. But leave this place today thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to put this into action? And I want to leave you also to pray. I'm going to hand over to Paul, actually, so he can lead into that. And to pray in some groups. And I want to encourage you to pray the Holy Spirit would help you in this. And pray there will be gospel fruitfulness from this. So over to you, Paul.